Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. February is a month devoted to matters of the heart. It's the month of Valentine's Day, after all. Not coincidentally, it is also American Heart Month, a month to promote heart health. Heart disease is the number one cause of death in America, and it may surprise you to learn it kills more women than all cancers combined. I'm happy to welcome Dr. Andrew Cates, Washington University cardiologist at Barnes Jewish Hospital. We'll talk about symptoms, diagnosis, and treatment of heart disease, and of course, about prevention. Doctor, it must be February. Good to see you again. Thanks for having me here today. Maybe we can just very quickly at the top run over some of the facts about heart disease that people may not know with regard to how serious it is. Well, thanks. As you mentioned, cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death in the U.S. Nearly one out of three deaths annually result from cardiovascular disease, and we're talking about heart disease and stroke and peripheral vascular disease. That's more than 800,000 U.S. citizens annually. And cardiovascular disease, again, being the leading cause of death in more than one Excuse me. Um, it's more than the other leading causes combined, including cancer and lung disease. Coronary heart disease results in maybe one out of seven deaths in the U.S., and nearly half of all deaths in the U.S. result from that. And it's important, as you mentioned, a couple different factors. One, in recent, the recent statistics tell us that 48% of all adults in the U.S. have some form of cardiovascular disease. So really, although we think we're doing better, the numbers suggest that even more individuals have cardiovascular disease. And you mentioned also that women are particularly affected by cardiovascular disease and coronary heart disease. Monday was, sorry, Friday was Go Red for for Women Day and realizing, again, the importance of that. And if we think about it, nearly 45% of women, adult women, have some form of cardiovascular disease. And African-Americans are particularly affected more than 57, nearly 57%. It's important also that women tend to be older when diagnosed, and they're more likely to die within one year. So Mm. it's truly very important, and again, that's why we're here to talk. And that surprises a lot of people. We've talked about this before because they think that women perhaps aren't uh, under the same kinds of stress that men are, but of course that's not true. Right. And, and despite the fact that the numbers that we see here, really more w- women more identify as cancer, breast cancer specifically being a greater concern for their overall health uh, than, than heart disease. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll, I'll start with this tweet that we have from Melissa who wants to address this subject. Uh, you mentioned the Go Red for Women Day, which was uh, on, on Friday, I guess it was, uh, to raise awareness in heart disease in women. What should women of St. Louis know about their risks for heart disease. Are there any changes given recent high blood pressure and cholesterol guideline updates? Right. So that, that's a good question to ask. And, and key to understanding uh, your uh, your risk is knowing what the risk factors are. So we know that risk factors, certain modifiable or treatable risk factors, including cholesterol and hypertension and diabetes and smoking and lack of physical activity, these are all important risk factors that play into it. And family history is also important to know also. And as it comes to recent guidelines, as Melissa asked, with changes in the guidelines related to cholesterol and hypertension, we know that lifestyle plays an important role in, in treating these risk factors, especially when it comes to treating hypertension. One of the key first steps in addressing hypertension is treating risk factors, is, so, is exercise, is moderate alcohol consumption, weight loss, uh, sodium restriction, and other factors like that. So understanding that lifestyle plays an important role. 
When it comes to identifying other risk factors, we know that smoking still plays a key role. The numbers suggest that smoking has gone down over the last several years, but still plays an important role. And then when it comes to understanding beyond risk factors, understanding the symptoms, too, that one should look for. And in women, it's somewhat different, not exactly the same kinds of symptoms that men experience. Well, that's interesting. And the traditional, the teaching has been, uh, at least in the past, that women can have symptoms that are different. In general, symptoms of heart disease or of a heart attack uh, or, or angina are still the same for men and women. Typically, we think about chest pain or chest pressure or symptoms like that, but they can be different in women as well. They can be less obvious, can be fatigue, um, heartburn, or other symptoms like that too. But it's important to remember the typical symptoms are still typical, but the fact is that um, they can have symptoms that are not typical. Melissa, in her tweet, also mentioned that there are some new uh, standards with regard to uh, blood pressure and uh, cholesterol right. guidelines. What's and going so, on there? So a couple things with that, too. So let, let's start with cholesterol. There, there's a lot that we can discuss related to cholesterol and, and the, the drugs that are available to treat cholesterol. Statins are still the, the main treatment for cholesterol, uh, but there are other newer drugs that are available as well. One of the interesting things relates to the risk factors that we identify for patients who are at high risk for heart disease that may modify the treatment goals for how we treat cholesterol. So the traditional risk factors for how we decide who's at risk that benefits from treatment for high cholesterol, the traditional risk factors are what we talked about with diabetes and hypertension family history of smoking, but we've also identified newer risk factors, and this is highlighted in our recent guidelines that came out back in November, including things like chronic kidney disease, early menopause or preeclampsia can be an important risk factor that may make us more aggressive in treating cardiovascular risk with, with cholesterol treating, treatment treating agents, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, other inflammatory disorders. Um, things like uh, other biomarkers that may be elevated, triglycerides or CRP levels, but also uh, patients who have elevated calcium scores. So a way we can screen for heart disease called coronary artery calcium screening can help identify patients who are at risk also. So we've been able to identify and highlighted in our recent guidelines are those risk factors that really may modify the discussions that we have with patients as to how we treat them. And then with, with regards to hypertension, we have changed the treatment goals for hypertension and guidelines that came out last year to where previous recommendations were to treat patients or hypertension was identified or diagnosed for individuals with blood pressure greater than 140 over 90. That's been modified or changed to where the diagnosis or it, and the uh, treatment would be to blood pressure of less than 130 over 80, and that was based upon um, a, few, a few trials that came out. But importantly, though, what the guidelines stress for many individuals isn't that they necessarily need to be treated for blood pressure that's over that. For many individuals, the first step is lifestyle changes, is implementing those modifiable lifestyle aspects that can really help reduce blood pressure before we get to treatment. That's something we can't feel, obviously. Hypertension is something that we, uh, we, we can't detect right. in and of ourselves. What is exactly is going on when our blood pressure yeah. increases? So th there's so many different <clears throat> variables that play into why we have hypertension. Uh, for many individuals, there's no one specific factor that results in hypertension. There's changes that happen during the course of the aging process. There's atherosclerosis that 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 um, results in changes that promote hypertension. Um, for a few individuals, there are specific components that cause hypertension. What we call secondary hypertension. That's by far the minority. 
But interestingly, though, there are, beyond some of the traditional lifestyle changes we talked about, there are other factors that play into hypertension weight. And by, by weight loss, we can effectively reduce um, blood pressure, but also things like sleep apnea that can go undiagnosed can help um, with um, helping uh, reduce blood pressure as well. What exactly, though, is it doing to you? If you uh, have that, high blood right. pressure, so, what's happening? Well, the, the, there's, um, so we could do a med school course on this, and, then, and unfortunately, mm-hmm. you don't give me enough time today to talk about all the aspects related to why hypertension results in, in cardiovascular disease, but the, the stress that it puts on cor- the coronary arteries um, can result in plaque rupture. The stress that elevated blood pressure puts on the heart can result in heart failure. The stress that one sees on cerebral vessels can result in stroke. Um, there and a variety of other factors that contribute to just why people are affected by hypertension. Should should people, as a matter of course, take their blood pressure on a regular basis? Another good question to ask. We do encourage patients to check blood pressure at home. And part of the way that we diagnose hypertension relates to not just blood pressures that are measured in the office. And this is actually another important addition to the guidelines that, that came out is the importance of checking blood pressure at home. There's an entity that you may be familiar with called white coat, white coat hypertension. Indeed. Which is when one's blood pressure is elevated in the clinician's office, but at home it's not. And so we know the importance of home blood pressure monitoring for diagnosing hypertension. There's another mechanism, ambulatory blood pressure monitoring, where one can wear a blood pressure monitor for for a day or two days. That's helpful, a little bit more expensive, but home blood pressure monitoring can be helpful. But it's important that it be done correctly too. Right, correct. So the, when checking it, one needs to be sure that they're seated, it's done appropriately. We always tell patients to wait five or 10 minutes before checking their blood pressure. Um, and that's a key component, but blood pressure monitoring at home is an important role. So you're asking, should we do it every day? I, I encourage patients to do, to do it um, daily f- for my patients, especially if we're trying to diagnose hypertension. Uh, for individuals who are screening, I would encourage them to do it on a somewhat regular basis. Do they need to do it daily? I, I, I think I would individualize that. Okay. Um, since we talked last, a year ago, probably almost exactly to, to the day, what, uh, what um, major steps forward have been taken? Has there been some progress so, in all of these things uh, in a year? Yeah, th- th- there's so much that's out there now related to, from a prevention standpoint, to how we treat valvular heart disease, to atrial fibrillation, to the role of, of uh, artificial intelligence and how we diagnose and manage heart disease. So there, there's a lot that's there. Um, I think there are a few interesting things that have come out um, related to prevention, especially with aspirin. So one thing we get asked a lot by our patients is some data that they may have heard related to aspirin to prevent heart disease. And it's important, there were actually a series of trials that came out around November, December of last year that looked at the role of aspirin for primary prevention. So to be specific, secondary prevention relates to treating patients who've had a heart attack or had a stroke or have cardiovascular disease. Primary prevention is treating individuals who may be at risk for heart disease but have not yet had a heart attack or not yet had a stroke. And so there are three trials that came out looking at a large group of, a different group of patients, diabetics or older patients or patients who are at higher risk who had not yet had a heart attack or stroke. Those patients were treated with aspirin or placebo over the course of several years. And in each of those trials, there was actually no benefit to taking an aspirin a day versus taking placebo. So with that, we've come to reconsider the role of aspirin for patients for primary prevention. And so with that, I would encourage 
uh, people to speak with their physician or their, their healthcare professional before they stop it if they're on aspirin. Because we, I also get asked by my patients who've had a heart attack if they should stop it because they read about this. And that's not the case. It's really for patients who think they're at risk because they have high blood pressure, but no other heart-related problems. For them, they may not actually benefit from it. And at least in one of these trials, there was actually a greater risk of bleeding and related being treated with aspirin. So that's one of the interesting things that we've seen over the last year. You've mentioned and, and some of the uh, some of the things to avoid with regard to uh, the potential for for uh, heart disease. You mentioned smoking being a biggie. I mean, that's mm-hmm. right at the top of every doctor's list I ever I ever talked. Obesity and things like that. What about genetics? Uh, I've, I've known so many people whose parent died at age 40 and they're scared to death. So that, that's a, another great question to ask. And actually, I was just having a conversation this morning with one of my fellows who is looking at this now, too. And one of the questions related to genetics is just how does that affect our individual risk? And this relates to another topic with precision medicine and how we tailor treatment for people based upon um, mm-hmm. genetic profiles. And it's important that there to understand that there are a lot of different markers that may be associated with higher risk in the genetic profile. So there's a research going on now in WashU specifically and other places also that are looking at the genetic uh, genetic markers that are specific for risk, not just risk factors like uh, triglycerides or cholesterol um, or other markers, but actually your genetic profile to see if there are markers that make you at higher risk for developing heart disease. So we know it's there, but it's such a nebulous thing to say, well, I have a family history, so I must be at higher risk. We got to get better than that. And that's what we're looking at. But but you as a cardiologist will pay attention if someone tells you that my parent died at a very young age. The, the, absolutely. And <clears throat> that's also where it's helpful to clarify too. And I, I we spent a lot of time talking with patients about this and, and providing education that when we talk about higher or increased risk and how it affects an individual, the traditional teaching is that for those individuals with a, a first-degree male relative over 55 or female over 65, that's associated with, uh, I'm sorry, l- less than 55 or less than 65, that's associated with higher risk. So if your grandmother passed away in her 80s for, from heart disease, that doesn't necessarily increase your risk. It's when it's at an earlier age, but we do listen to that, especially if it's heart disease, if it's sudden death, um, other factors like that really do help us, not just for diagnosing coronary disease, but if there's other uh, conditions that you may suspect you have, family history c- can be important. So it's, mm-hmm. it's helpful to identify that. And we always like to ask patients to be as specific as they can be uh, because that helps us as we try to identify just what their risk may be. We have to take a break. We'll do that. We're talking with Dr. Andrew Cates, cardiologist from Washington University and, and Barnes Jewish Hospital. And we'd like to get you into the conversation. You have questions specifically about the issue of, of heart disease, the coronary issues. Uh, give us a call at 382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Send us an email to talk at stlpublicradio.org, or we'll take that tweet, too, at STL on air. Back with Dr. Cates in a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast of St. Louis on the Air, brought to you by Lindenwood University's Hammond Institute for Free Enterprise, examining market approaches to help solve economic and social issues. Hammond.Institute. And welcome back as we continue our conversation with Dr. Andrew Cates, cardiologist of Washington University and Barnes Jewish Hospital. Doctor, you mentioned something a, a moment ago that I wanted to follow up on, and that was uh, artificial intelligence coming into play. 
What is going on with that? So th- there's a lot of interesting things that are out there. Um, one re- relates to the role of artificial intelligence in in diagnosing heart disease and diagnosing other conditions too. And there's a lot that's going on uh, now to really look at how do we integrate AI with physicians and healthcare professionals mm-hmm. in really helping diagnose heart disease and diagnosing other conditions as well too. And also how we implement healthcare as well too. And uh, several people that were even at WashU that are looking into this as part of as part of various projects. Well, give me some uh, for instance. Well, actually, one of the things that's be interesting to see is just <laughs> the idea of wearable technology. So, how do you know monitoring monitoring heart heart rhythms, looking for atrial fibrillation? So, how does a wearable device play into that role, and and can we diagnose AFib from that? Um, and also, though, if we take patients who come in with, with various conditions, can we plug it into a computer and get a diagnosis? And mm-hmm. and how does that? How will that help? And how do we integrate that to to clinicians who are providing care to those patients, and can we improve care by by utilizing those types of technologies? But doesn't the Apple Watch or devices yeah. like that uh, do that now? Some of so that we, now? So w- w- we don't know yet. There's actually be a study that will be coming out that, that's looking at that to tell us if that does work or not. Uh-huh. So. Well, uh, they're going to put you out of business, doctor. So, so actually, that, that's an interesting, uh, interesting comment, and I think we've come to realize too that that that's not necessarily the approach. It's actually working together that's going to be key, and how it can help us as we help in, as we help patients. Let's talk for a moment about uh, about symptoms. Um, there, there are a lot of false positives out there. I guess you could call it when you you feel tense, anxious, what ha- what have you, a level of stress. Uh, how, how should we pay attention to these things? So I think it's important to understand the symptoms that we think or that we talk about that are concerning for heart disease. And we could also talk about symptoms for stroke or mm-hmm. peripheral vascular disease. But, but as it relates to heart disease, the classic symptoms that we think about are usually exertional chest pain symptoms. And let's be clear, too, we're talking about difference between uh, talking about heart disease symptoms versus a heart attack. Now, symptoms of a heart attack are sudden usually very well come on at rest, and we think about chest pain or crushing chest pain or chest pressure that doesn't go away. Um, those are one set of symptoms. Symptoms that are a little more insidious may be what we call angina, or the symptom complex of, of heart disease. So exertional chest pain symptoms, exertional, exertional shortness of breath, or chest pressure or tightness, especially symptoms that start to progress. So if you're an active person, you start noticing these symptoms with, with exercise and they start to progress, then understanding that's something that's worthwhile to be evaluated. Mm-hmm. Um, and typically an evaluation can include, first of all, at least dis- discussing with your physician, but also a stress test or other type of evaluation. What about children? The children have heart attacks too. Mm-hmm. Um, in general, the prevalence of coronary disease in children is is very low. Mm-hmm. Um, usually, when we see cardiovascular see any type of cardiovascular disease in children, we tend to think about more of a congenital condition rather than mm-hmm. due to atherosclerotic disease. The rare instance I think would be somebody who has very high cholesterol related to genetic disorder. Um, we do see what's interesting over the course of the last several years is being highlighted, especially in, in younger women, so 20s and 30s, uh, an entity called SCAD, which is spontaneous coronary artery dissection, which is a l- different than traditional coronary disease, but an entity that goes underdiagnosed in, in women, and especially younger women. Uh, and has gotten a lot more attention, and importantly so, uh, because of the way it presents typically with symptoms of a heart attack, um, but is 
different. Um, and it's it's worth noting too that um, those are key symptoms. And again, and thinking back again to your question related to the symptoms that we look for, I, I encourage people to be appropriately cautious and be respectful of the symptoms that, that are concerning it and have them checked out. Would uh, would a, uh, a parent typically know if a child has a congenital heart issue? Um, in in general, um, yes. I, I think the it depends upon the type of congenital abnormality that we're that we're discussing, um, and many present early on in, at, at birth. And there's screening that goes on that's more over more appropriate for one of our pediatric cardiologists to talk about. Um, but there are there is screening and different uh, types of congenital heart disease that will present at, at an earlier age. There are other congenital abnormalities that were presented at a later age, and we can see patients who may have f- failure to thrive, may have um, other other abnormalities which will show themselves. Let's take a call. Carol is going to join us from University City. Carol, thanks for being with us. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, I don't have hypertension, but I do have rheumatoid arthritis, and I just wondered if he could comment a little bit more on um, the what rheumatoid arthritis does to the heart and just how heart issues relate to rheumatoid arthritis. So thanks, Carol. That's a good question to ask. And we do see an association um, with rheumatoid arthritis and and, and heart disease. Um, Most likely, I think the mechanism that's been purported for that relates to the inflammatory process that that occurs. Um, And so I can't quote you the specific incidence of heart disease as it relates to rheumatoid arthritis, but it is higher prevalence. So this is, again, along the lines of inflammatory disorders, something to, to consider. And as far as screening for you, I'd encourage you to talk with your, your uh, uh, physician about just other risk factors that you may have but and how that would affect whether or not you need to be treated. As far as screening specifically for coronary disease, I don't think there are specific recommendations related to the need for screening, for say, with a stress test. Um, but I think it's something to be aware of that you are at higher risk. And again, this may, in discussions, may modify how aggressive we are in treating risk factors. And I'll take a step back to understand when it comes to treating uh, treating cholesterol, treating hypertension, it's treating numbers to some degree, but we're treating risk also. And that's one of the keys with our, our cholesterol guidelines, especially, is that we're treating overall risk. We're looking at patients who may have elevated numbers related to cholesterol per se, but then again, these other factors that come into play with other risk factors increase their risk for developing cardiovascular disease, so we want to be more aggressive. And the corollary I have with that is people ask, well, you know, where do I get my numbers to or why you know, I want to get my numbers to goal? The idea to treat numbers to a certain goal isn't just to, to make it look good that we're getting the numbers down. It's really to lower your risk. And that's, that's the ultimate. So again, for you specifically, the fact that you have RA may modify what, whether or not your, your healthcare professional decides to treat, your, to treat you with, say, with, uh, say a statin or, or something to help address cholesterol. Inflammation is often associated with heart disease. Uh, why is that? And, and certainly that's why you're recommending aspirin. Yeah, and there, there's, um, there's a lot of different mechanisms that result in the development of, of coronary artery disease. And when we look at plaques that build up inside coronary arteries and, and elsewhere, there's different processes that occur. There's partly an inflammatory process. There's also a, a lipid core that can develop as well, too, that's at risk for rupture. And, um, and presumably that, that inflammatory process interacts with an, what could be an unstable plaque or promotes what could become an unstable plaque. 
Should we, uh, as a matter of course, be taking an aspirin or two every day? Well, that, that comes back to the idea of what your overall risk is. And again, certainly those patients who have have had a heart attack or stroke should be taking an aspirin day. For, for those that don't, again, it's not entirely clear. And for those that are otherwise healthy, uh, then an aspirin a day probably isn't helpful. Is it true that if you, if you sense that you're having a heart attack or feel this pressure that you mentioned before, that the first thing you should do is chew an aspirin? Yeah, in, in the in the acute setting, it's it's not a bad idea to, to take an aspirin, and we that's what we have. We treat patients when they present is to give them an aspirin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have a question here: Can taking a multivitamin help prevent heart disease? Well, the data with multivitamins isn't so good. There's been a series of trials looking at the role of multivitamins, and we can extend this to other supplements also. Uh, for prevention of, of heart disease. There have been several trials looking at multivitamins, and there's a physician's trial and, um, a, a, a nurse's trial as well that have looked at this, and really there wasn't any benefit. And one of the presumptions was that people who took a multivitamin maybe felt that they were otherwise, they, they were living a healthier life, so they didn't need to address these other other aspects of prevention or, or healthy lifestyle. But really there's, not, there's no great data to say that a multivitamin day is helpful. Let's let's uh, look into the future as best we can. Uh, what what do you see on the horizon? We've talked about artificial intelligence and some of the, some of uh, those things. What else do you see on the horizon that's being worked on now I, in I research? I think what's going to be interesting to see is the role of precision medicine. And when we talk about precision medicine, that that really involves um, tailoring how we treat patients to on an individual basis. There's this idea that we can look at biogenetic analysis and lifestyle, environmental conditions that let us tailor therapies, drug therapies to individuals. And I think that's going to be interesting to see how this develops over the course of the next 5, 10, or 15 years, and really how we can decide. If we take a step back and think, you know, when it comes to treating patients with statins for cholesterol, we know that we have to treat a certain number of patients to see benefit. Not everybody is destined to benefit from it because not everybody's destined to have, have a heart attack or stroke. But if we think about how we can identify more on an individual basis who's going to benefit, that way we can target therapies better and be more aggressive in individuals who may not have clearly identified risk factors. So I think that's going to be kind of interesting to see just where we go from there. We have an email here from Michael writes, what is your opinion on the ability of diet to control and even reverse heart disease or hypertension? I'm thinking specifically about the forks over knives diet, which my wife and I follow. So I, I, I don't know the forks over knives diet. I'm, I'm thinking <clears throat> that what that is is if you use, you use a knife to, okay. to cut meat, for instance, and forks to eat healthier things ah, like that. thank so. you. That's my guess. <laughs> I think. Uh, um, so a, a couple things. You know, I, I think diet is a key component to a healthy lifestyle. And first, I, I'll get a plug from my, my registered dietitian colleagues to get, get that out there because it's important to talk to, to them because they really understand the role of a good balanced diet. Um, I think dietary trials are challenging because there can be a fair amount of confounding and variability. I encourage patients to eat a healthy diet, and there are very many well-balanced diets that are out there. Um, It needs to be a sustainable diet. But also when it comes to, you asked the question about reversibility, I think the data is really unclear, and there are people who will quote studies that say, well, in this trial, this specific diet shows some reversal in plaque. Many of those trials are 
uh, well, I shouldn't say many, some of those trials are somewhat suspect, and it can be difficult to really say clinically how beneficial that is versus um, uh, versus some softer outcomes that were used in those trials. So, uh, Mike, to answer your question, I think diet is an important part of lifestyle, an important part of health, of healthy living, and, and key to, to maintaining weight can help modify cholesterol um, and can help with hypertension as well, too. But I think it's just part of it. All right. Uh, we're getting close to having to wrap this up, but I do want to take one more call. This will be from Ann calling from St. Louis. Ann, uh, thanks for waiting. You're on the air. Hi. Uh, thank you for taking my call, uh, Dr. Kate. Yes, I was. Uh, my question has to do with kind of the theme of what you're talking about, um, diet and um, anti-inflammatory. I have um, cardiac sarcoidosis, and uh, what are your thoughts on methotrexate as a form of um, helping reduce, I guess, inflammation and, and treating that? So, um, and th- thanks for your question. I, I, I'm always careful when I comment specifically on a patient's condition. Sure. Um, and sarcoid is a very complex condition, and I, I hope you're uh, seeing. A, I trust you're seeing cardiology cardiologists for that. You know, m- there are several different treatments that are available to treat sarcoid beyond just traditional treatments with, say, with with, with steroids. And methotrexate is one of those immunologic uh, modulating agents. When it comes to treating methotrexate, that's something that that I share my patients with 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 rheumatologists mm-hmm. and others to help decide if that's the right drug to use or not. So I'm going to um, I'm actually going to sidestep that question and probably encourage you to speak with your um, with, with the person taking care of your your sarcoid as if that's to decide if that's the best agent for you. Um, and again, when it comes to utilizing those type, the anti-inflammatory drugs can have benefit on reducing the burden of sarcoid, but it's a, it's, it's a very complex uh, clinical situation. Well, one final question. What about uh, surgical uh, innovation and improvements, and uh, are we seeing something, anything happening there? So I, I, I'm, I'm just a cardiologist. I'm, I'm not a surgeon. But there's, there's a lot of um, changes in the way we treat, say, valvular heart disease. And I think actually a great way to think about this is there have been advances in, in minimally invasive surgery uh, say with valvular heart disease, but also catheter-based approaches to treating valvular heart disease. And what this has come to highlight is the importance of the heart team. So we have t- a team at WashU and this around the country of a valve team that, that will help take care of patients, including a cardiac surgeon and a cardiologist, as well as nurse practitioner and other, and other uh, providers as well, too, to really help take care of the patients t- together. So the advances that we see really are, co- are complementing each other. Well, I want to thank you once again. Another quick uh, segment of this program, uh, Dr. Andrew Cates. Thank you so it's much. It's gone for by being so quickly. The, yeah, right. Well, we'll see you again next uh, February. If not, I look forward uh, not to before it. Before that, thank you so much for being with us. Always a pleasure. Uh, this is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, ninety point seven KWMU.